Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'm bringing you the conclusion of the case of Jesse Shockley in Glendale, Arizona. If you haven't heard last week's episode yet, you might want to skip back. And with that said, let's get right to it. Last week, we went over Jerise Hunter's history of abuse against her four children while she was pregnant with Jesse. She and her husband at the time, George Shockley, were incarcerated, and Jesse was raised by her Aunt Lisa and Lisa's sister. That was until Jesse was four and a half, and Jerise was released early after serving just over four years of her 10 year sentence. Jerise's mother, Shirley Johnson, handed custody of Jerise's three older daughters back to her upon her release. And eventually, Jesse's aunts were forced to turn over custody of little Jesse back to her mother. Ten months later, on October 11, 2011, Jesse was reported missing from her mother's apartment in Glendale. Jerise told authorities she had briefly taken a cab to run an errand and left five-year-old Jesse with her older siblings, and when she returned, she was gone. The Arizona Child Abduction Response Team, which included members of the FBI, was deployed and hundreds of officers responded to search for the missing five-year-old. As Jerise's history of abuse surfaced and details surrounding Jesse's disappearance didn't make sense, investigators pressed for answers, at which point she became uncooperative. Fearing that the other three daughters in her care were in danger, CPS removed the girls and placed them in foster care. Weeks after Jesse vanished, one of the aunties who had helped raise her spoke to the Republic and told the outlet that she had called CPS several times to report her suspicions that Jesse and her older sisters were being abused by Jerise. But the aunts who raised Jesse weren't the only family members speaking out to the press. According to the New York Times, Jerise Hunter and her mother Shirley held a protest at the state capitol on October 26th. They accused the Glendale police of botching the investigation by focusing on Jerice and made claims that due to Jesse's race and Jerice's criminal history, they hadn't done all they could to find the little girl. The women also railed against the media for the same reasons. According to Nine News, Jerice Hunter stated, They refused to believe that this black woman didn't do nothing to her child. I gotta be guilty, right? The Glendale police would adamantly deny any claims about race playing a role in their search for Jesse. Resources were still pouring in. And as far as the media went, 
they had kept the public updated every step of the way. Jerisa's claims infuriated many because minorities and people of color often do not get the resources or coverage their cases deserve. But for Jesse Shockley, it didn't seem this was the case. In Jesse's case, it seemed the only people holding back were her mother and grandmother. And not only were they holding back, making these wild accusations when they were seemingly untrue could further damage cases where race did play a role in the response of the media or the resources utilized. And further, they were stalling Jesse's case. Jerice herself had often been combative with reporters. This was on full display when, towards the end of the protest, a reporter from the Phoenix Times asked Jerice if she had harmed her daughter. She screamed back, It's very unfair to ask me that. Do I look like I hurt my daughter? Do I look like I hurt my daughter? What the general public didn't quite know yet was that investigators did believe Jerice had hurt Jesse because Jerice's other children had a whole different account of what happened in the days and weeks prior to Jesse's disappearance. As I've said, other members of Jesse's family also suspected that Jerice was abusing her in those days, weeks, and months prior to her disappearance and attempted to get authorities involved. According to court records released by the Glendale Police Department and obtained by the Phoenix New Times, records show that a report was filed with police in April, as Jesse's aunts claimed. It's unclear whether the police notified CPS or to what level these claims were investigated. If you recall from last week, CPS released what they said was the only report of suspected abuse. It was dated for February of 2011. However, many members of Jesse's family disputed the claim of a single report, and a logical person would assume that the police would turn over the investigation into a child's abuse to the proper agency. While it's unclear exactly what happened with that April report or why action wasn't taken, the ball was clearly dropped, and now Jesse was missing. Warning, the details we're about to discuss are absolutely brutal. The abuse Jesse Shockley suffered is, for a lack of better words, completely incomprehensible. If you need to go, believe me, I completely understand. I believe Jesse's story needs to be told in its entirety, but I realize that hearing the details of what this beautiful baby girl endured can be a lot to handle. I'm going to cut to an ad break real quick to give those who choose to a moment to dip out. According to court records obtained by the New Times, Jesse's 13-year-old sister, you know, the sister Jerice had low-key blamed for Jesse's disappearance by reporting to authorities that she had left her in charge when Jesse vanished and one of the children Jerice had previously abused. That sister. Well, after being taken from her mother's home and placed in foster care, she revealed to a family member and later police that several weeks before Jesse was reported missing, Jerice had come home and found the five-year-old watching TV with a young boy from the neighborhood. For reasons unknown to Jesus and his legions of angels, this enraged Jerice. She called this five-year-old child a hoe and drug her into a bedroom where the 13-year-old overheard little Jesse screaming and crying. And from that moment on, Jesse was locked in the bedroom closet. 
Her sister reported that she would sneak water to her baby sister and let her out to use the bathroom when Jerice was away, but she had to rush to get Jesse back into the closet before Jerice returned to keep the five-year-old from getting another beating. She also told investigators that there were multiple bruises and cuts on the little girl's face and body. Her hair had been pulled out and that her eyes were black and only slightly open. Jessie was in such horrible condition that the 13-year-old said she looked like a zombie, and the closet where she was held smelled like dead people and was like a grave. In the days before Jerice reported Jessie missing, she had cleaned the entire apartment and scrubbed shoes that were in the closet with Jessie with bleach. Bleach the police would locate a receipt from Walgreens for in the apartment, which was purchased on October 9th. The 13-year-old's account was backed up by the fact that the last time anyone outside the immediate family had seen Jessie Shockley alive was the last time she attended school, on September 22, 2011, a full 19 days before Jerice Hunter had reported her missing. Over the weeks, Jerice had excuse after excuse to the school as to why Jessie had been absent. Officials at the school later testified that this laundry list of excuses included missing the bus, ringworm, ringworm of the scalp, pink eye, issues with scheduling a doctor's appointment, and waiting for a doctor's release clearing Jesse for school. Concerned with the amount of absences, the medical assistant at the school had actually suggested Jerice take Jesse to an urgent care center that made payment arrangements or bring her in to the school nurse. But Jerice did none of these things. And when she finally decided to report her daughter missing, she instructed the other children in the home to lie about the day Jessie vanished. None of them had actually seen their sister that day. As police continued their investigation, Jerice gave birth to another child. The newborn was immediately removed from her care. On November 21, 2011, the Glendale Police held a press conference announcing the arrest of Jerice Hunter on a felony count of child abuse involving Jesse. Court documents detailing what the 13-year-old had told police were released to the public. Glendale Police Sergeant Brett Coombs spoke and said they did not expect to find Jesse alive and that her mother was the number one focus in the investigation into the girl's disappearance. The reward for information was increased to $25,000. At Jerisa's first court appearance, she maintained her innocence and blamed police once again. Investigators conducted a second search of the apartment. On November 28th, the charges against Jerisa Hunter were dropped, and she was released from jail. Maricopa County attorney at the time, Bill Montgomery, said that the charge could create a situation of double jeopardy if police later pursued a felony murder case against her, and it appeared that's exactly what they had in mind. On December 21, 2011, investigators announced that they suspected Jesse was killed and thrown in a trash bin roughly 20 miles away from Glendale and Tempe before she was reported missing. For the first time, officials referred to the case as an active homicide investigation and revealed that they were trying to determine 
whether searching the Butterfield Station landfill would lead them to the recovery of Jesse's body. If investigators were going to search this landfill, it was going to be a huge undertaking. According to Waste Management, Butterfield Landfill Station is a 1,200-acre facility that processes 1,200,000 tons of trash annually, servicing the Phoenix metro area and surrounding cities, including Tempe. But they had good reason to believe that Jesse was there. So after months of planning, on February 6, 2012, they began their search. According to the Phoenix New Times, roughly 40 officers from different agencies, including the Glendale Police Department, the FBI, and the Child Abduction Response Team, would be at the landfill every day until the search was complete. As the searches went on, that number grew to 200 searchers. They had traced the trash route and narrowed down the search to a 180 by 200 square foot area of the landfill where they suspected Jesse's remains might be. But even narrowing it down, it was still a huge area. The trash was 20 feet deep. It all added up to about 9,500 tons of trash. Investigators would have to search piece by piece to look for any sign of Jesse. For 10 long weeks, these officers suited up and searched desperately, looking for any clue. They were determined to find her. But on June 27, 2012, the Glendale police made a heartbreaking announcement. They believed wholeheartedly that Jesse's remains were at that landfill, but despite their best efforts, they were unable to recover anything relating to the missing five-year-old. The search was over. Assistant Police Chief Rick St. John stated to the outlet that there was irrefutable evidence she's there somewhere, but refused to say what that evidence was. Glendale Police Commander Dave Medea broke down in tears, his voice cracking as he explained how hard it was knowing that they were leaving her in the landfill. He said, A little five-year-old girl did not deserve this in her life. We did everything we possibly could, humanly possible, to find Jesse. The assistant police chief made it clear that Jerese Hunter remained the prime suspect in what they believed was Jesse's murder, and they had enough evidence to charge her, stating that they were, quote, very near presenting the case to the county's attorney. And very near it they were, because on September 6, 2012, Jerese Hunter was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and child abuse. She entered a plea of not guilty. Even with Jerese's arrest, many questioned how police were so sure Jesse was deceased and what had led them to a landfill in Tempe. And soon, they would have answers to both of these questions. According to AZ Central, on October 9, 2012, the Glendale police released more than 1,400 pages of records in Jesse's case. Included in these documents was a statement from a neighbor who told detectives a horrific story about a trip to Tempe and a suitcase a week prior to Jesse being reported missing. According to this neighbor, Jerese, who, remember, didn't have a car, asked her for a ride to Tempe to deliver some clothes and shoes to another woman who was going to buy them from her. The neighbor backed her car up to the back patio gate of Jerese's apartment to load a suitcase of what she thought were clothes and shoes. 
But Jerice, who was a whole eight months pregnant at the time, turned down her offer to help her load the large suitcase into the trunk, all while explaining that if she smelled something bad, it was probably from the shoes in the suitcase. It all started out innocent enough, but shit got weird quick. After the pair had driven to an apartment complex in Tempe, Jerice told her to park the car near an empty parking lot on the side of the complex. She then told her neighbor that the woman who was going to buy the items had told her to leave them in the dumpster. Jerice strapped on gloves and struggled to place a suitcase into the dumpster, still refusing help. She must have also placed the gloves in that dumpster because when she got into the car, she was no longer wearing them. The neighbor asked if they should wait for the woman to come and pay Jerice and pick up the items, but Jerice said that wouldn't be necessary. Just so we have this straight, Jerice had this woman drive her 20 miles to Tempe to sell clothes and shoes to some other mystery woman, shoes apparently so worn she felt the need to issue a warning about the smell. She then put on gloves to drop the suitcase into a dumpster and never receive payment for these items. Of all the stories, this is the one she made a conscious decision to tell. The trial began on March 2, 2015. Over the next 20 days, the prosecution laid out exactly what they believed happened. Jurors got a glimpse during opening statements when prosecutor Jeanette Gallagher took the floor and wove the evidence police had uncovered into a heartbreaking story. Gallagher told the jurors that after Jerice had abused Jesse, she hid her away in a closet without food or water to cover that abuse. As the days went on, people began to question where the five-year-old was, especially her school after she had missed more than two weeks of kindergarten. She made excuse after excuse, but as pressure mounted and she could no longer stall, she killed Jesse and disposed of her body. The reason? According to the prosecutor, Jerice simply didn't want Jesse anymore, and while they couldn't give an exact cause or date of death, all the possibilities were horrific. Little Jessie had died at the hands of her mother from either malnutrition, dehydration, or internal bleeding caused by physical abuse. Jerice had then made her disappear in, quote, such a way that she made herself the victim. The defense put a whole new twist on the story. Attorney Candace Shoemaker told jurors that Jerice wanted to take responsibility for her daughter, and that's why she had asked for police assistance in getting custody of Jesse after her early release from prison. It's important to note here that none of the evidence of the prior conviction of child abuse in California and the reason for Jerice Hunter's stint in prison were presented to the jury due to a ruling by the judge presiding over the case. The defense claimed that the multiple issues that caused Jesse to miss more than two weeks of school were legitimate, and teachers at that school never saw any signs of abuse. They alluded that two witnesses would testify that claimed to have seen Jesse in the afternoon on the day she disappeared. Shoemaker threw shade at the Glendale Police Department, claiming they immediately focused on Jerice, starting with the night she reported her daughter missing, stating they treated her as a suspect and not as a mom. They portrayed Jerice as a desperate mother of a missing child who did not believe her daughter was deceased, further stating 
she refuses to give up hope of finding her. But according to the evidence presented by the prosecution, while Jessie's body had never been recovered, there was no hope of finding her alive. And that evidence was pretty damn compelling. While Jerisa's prior California conviction of child abuse and the reason she had served prison time wasn't entered into evidence, a former lover named Andrea testified that she had met Jerisa and Jesse while they were living at a domestic violence shelter. Andrea noticed that Jesse appeared to be fearful of her mother and that Jerisa was aggressive with Jesse, speaking to her more like a teenager than the kindergartner she was. She recalled an incident in the spring of 2011, after Jerisa had moved into the apartment with her children and Andrea had come to stay with Jerisa after her girlfriend kicked her out. At one point, she and Jessie were playing with Play-Doh when a couple pieces fell onto the carpet. She told Jessie to clean it up quickly before Jerice saw it. But just as Jessie went to pick it up, Jerice walked into the room, saw the Play-Doh on the floor, grabbed Jessie, drug her to a bedroom, and began to beat her. Andrea rushed to the door and tried to intervene. She stated, I went to the door and I told her I felt she was doing too much. Jerice basically told her to mind her business and that she had no right to tell her how to discipline her kids. Andrea was so upset at what had just occurred, she left the apartment, never to return, not even to retrieve her luggage, a pair of large red wheeled duffel bags. Hang on to that detail because it'll be important later. Jessie's kindergarten teacher testified that Jerice Hunter told her that Jessie was defiant, uncooperative, and increasingly aggressive at home, and she worried the girl was bothering other students. But the teacher saw none of that in little Jessie, and described her as an emerging leader, stating in interacting with her peers, Jessie was willing to take the first step to talk with them or reach out to them. She went on to say that she never saw any signs of abuse. The teacher and other school officials testified about the absences leading up to Jesse being reported missing and Jerice's host of excuses, detailing the suggestions they had made to help get Jesse back on track. Suggestions that, of course, as we know, Jerice didn't follow through with. A relative of Jerice's named Carl recounted to the jury that a week prior to Jesse's disappearance, he had paid Jerice cash in exchange for food stamps. Jerice told him she needed money to pay her rent. After the exchange, Jerice asked him to take two of her children to the bus stop. One of them she introduced to him as Jesse, but it wasn't. Carl explained that he later learned five-year-old Jesse's true identity from a news report and the child he'd taken to the bus stop was definitely not Jesse. This whole thing had gone down earlier in the day before Jerice asked that neighbor to give her a ride to Tempe. The neighbor also testified and told the same story we've already been over, adding that on the ride to Tempe, Jerice Hunter seemed nervous. But after she had dumped the suitcase in the dumpster, she seemed relaxed and told the neighbor, she was hungry and ready to grab some food. And even though the woman had only seen glimpses of the suitcase as Jerice loaded it in and out of the trunk, it was wheeled and at least partially red in color. Kinda like the suitcase Andrea had never gotten back. 
Officers and investigators took the stand and testified to their involvement in the case. Police Sergeant Mark Langford, who was very active in the searches for Jesse, testified about an odd 911 call placed by Jerice roughly a month after Jesse was reported missing. This time, she had called because she couldn't get access to money that was being raised to help find Jesse. But when the officer responded, Jerice denied that was why she had called and slammed the door in his face. Several investigators detailed the physical evidence found, including video surveillance of the neighbor and Jerice at a Circle K on October 4, 2011, on their way to Tempe. That Walgreens receipt for bleach purchased on October 9th and video surveillance of Jerice making the purchase. A trained cadaver dog had alerted to the scent of human decomposition on the trunk of the neighbor's car, the dumpster, and a piece of carpet taken from Jerice's home. A second search of the apartment was done after investigators received a letter written by Jesse's 13-year-old sister, which detailed what she saw happen to Jesse and alerted police to a bloodstain in the carpet in the master bedroom closet a bloodstain that was as large as a sheet of notebook paper. Criminologist Daniel Morena explained that a blood sample was retrieved from that carpet, and since they didn't have access to Jesse's DNA, a reverse paternity test was conducted. The DNA was consistent with Jerice Hunter, Jesse's father, George Shockley, and one of Jesse's siblings. The experts stated that the DNA profile was, quote, 2,010 trillion times more likely to be Jesse's blood than anyone else's. And that was all pretty solid, but the most heartbreaking and compelling evidence the prosecution had came in the form of Jerice's older daughter, and maybe not for the reason you'd expect. You could have heard a pin drop in the courtroom when the now 17-year-old walked up to take the stand. She stopped at the defense table and embraced her mother with tears streaming down her face. She was a reluctant witness for the prosecution, but she bravely told the truth. According to Fox 10 Phoenix, the teen detailed the weeks before Jesse's disappearance and the overall abuse inflicted on the five-year-old by their mother. She told the jury that her mother would punish Jesse by taking her into the master bedroom, whipping her, and then forcing the little girl into the closet. The years of abuse this teen had suffered were clear from the moment she began to testify. Abuse suffered not only at her mother's hands, but also likely when she was placed with her grandmother, Shirley Johnson. As later testimony would reveal, Shirley had a history of abusing her own children, Jerice included. As the girl testified about her mother's punishments of she and her siblings, she placed the blame solely on herself, stating, I always made my mom mad, so it was kind of my fault, because I shouldn't have made her mad. She went on to detail the day five-year-old Jesse was beaten and explained the injuries. She said, I went in there and she was crying. She was just hurt, I guess. The prosecution asked her to describe how Jesse was hurt. She responded, she had, like, black stuff coming out of her eyes like gloop. She wanted me to take her to the bathroom, but she couldn't really walk that much, so I took her to the bathroom. She went on to say that Jessie was covered head to toe in bruises. 
As the weeks passed, the teen snuck food and water to her baby sister when Jerice wasn't home. She also stated that she had last seen Jesse in the closet a week before their mother reported her missing. And the last time she saw her, quote, she looked like she was weak and like she was still moving, but she wasn't really moving that much. As the prosecution pressed further about Jerice's abuse, the girl defended her mom, stating, You guys are trying to make my mom a bad person. She's not a bad person. That is what you're trying to do. She's not a bad person. Just because you get spankings or something, that doesn't make her a bad person. If she gets angry, that doesn't make her a bad person. So you guys need to stop. At that point, Jerice Hunter yelled across the courtroom, and told her daughter she loved her. Many were shocked at the girl's defense of her mother, but experts in the field of psychology, or those with experience with abuse, knew this was a common response for children who suffered through the trauma of being abused. According to VeryWellMind.com, trauma bonding is the attachment an abused person feels for their abuser, specifically in a relationship with a cyclical pattern of abuse. The bond is created due to a cycle of abuse and positive reinforcement and is quite literally the brain's survival method. This teenage girl was just trying to survive. When it was time for the defense to present its case, only two witnesses were called. Jesse's kindergarten teacher, who testified once again that she saw no signs of abuse. And a great-grandmother, who lived in the apartments, who told a pretty interesting story. The court protected the identity of the elderly woman, so we don't have a name, but we do have the story. Remember that tip about the mystery woman and the Chevy Malibu sparking the Amber Alert? This is where it came from. The witness told the court that she had gone outside her apartment near 45th and Glendale Avenue at about 4 p.m. on October 11, 2011, to smoke a cigarette when she saw a girl between 5 and 6 years old and about 38 inches tall. The little girl had been crying and, according to the witness, playing a sort of hide-and-seek game with her. She spoke to the girl and tried to convince her to let her take her to her mother, but the girl ran towards the intersection of 45th and Glendale when a dark-colored Chevy Malibu pulled up and a woman grabbed the girl, put her inside the car, and drove away. She said, The little girl did not yell, she did not scream but she didn't seem eager to go with them either. The prosecution pointed out, however, that the woman's story had changed multiple times, and she was the only witness who reported seeing anything along those lines. And with that, the case was in the jury's hands. According to USA Today, they deliberated for the equivalent of two and a half days before reaching their verdict. On April 27, 2015, the courtroom was packed as a member of the jury announced the verdict. Jerice Hunter was found guilty of murder in the first degree and child abuse. As the verdict was read, Jerice's mother cried out, Oh God, she is not dead. She was promptly removed from the courtroom. After the proceedings, she spoke to reporters outside and doubled down in support of her daughter, stating, That baby is not dead. I don't mean to yell, but I'm disturbed that they reduced this baby to the grave so they can take her off the National Missing Persons Registry so they don't have to look for her anymore because she's black. I'm telling you the truth. 
if she was blonde hair, blue eyes, that baby would be all over, still on the National Registry. Jessie Shockley is still listed on the Charlie Project, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, among other websites to this day. The Glendale police still urge anyone with information that could lead them to the recovery of Jessie's remains to come forward. Jerice Hunter and her mother could blame whoever they wanted, but the evidence that Jerice had abused and murdered Jessie was overwhelming. She was convicted and the jury had further found aggravating factors had been proven. She was facing 35 years to life. At sentencing, it was evident that what Jerice had done had ripped the entire family apart. Some of them testifying in support of her, saying she was a good person and despite the jury's verdict, they didn't believe she was capable of what she'd been convicted of. Other family members, including the aunties who had raised Jessie from birth until she had been snatched away from them, spoke about their love for the little girl. They expressed regret that they weren't successful in their fight to keep her safe with them. And then Lisa addressed Jerice directly, stating in part, I don't consider you part of my family or my cousin, and you will forever be known as a baby killer. Do you understand that word, a baby killer? And you're going to get what's coming to you, to you, the baby killer. Jerice was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. The murder of Jesse Shockley shook not only those who knew and loved her, but the entire community. It left many of the officers who searched feeling as if they had failed Jesse by not locating her body and giving her a proper burial. All the family had was a makeshift memorial at a landfill. But they didn't fail Jesse. The system that was created to protect her did. A system that at times seems to seek reunification with a biological parent over everything else, even when it doesn't make a lick of sense. Jessie barely knew her mother. She never had an opportunity to bond with her before she was taken away from the only mother figure she knew and thrown into a home with a known abuser. And most of all, Jerice Hunter failed her, the one person on the planet who should have loved and protected her, abused and murdered her. If she didn't want to care for Jessie, she could have taken her back to her aunties. She had options. She had opportunities to seek medical care, but she chose to watch her own daughter suffer for weeks and die locked away in a closet. It seems pretty fitting that for the rest of her natural life, she'll be locked away in a cell, hidden away from the world, and mostly forgotten. But the world will never forget Jessie Shockley. Little Jessie may have only been five years old, but she already stood out. A bright and beautiful little girl who loved dressing up and the color purple. She was growing up to be every ounce of the superstar her Aunt Lisa described her as. She was loved and treasured by her aunt's extended family and an entire community, and always will be. A poem was written for Jessie by family member Tequasion Akins and read aloud in court. I want to leave you with her words today. My name is Tequasion Akins. 
We wrote a poem for Jessie. Um, is she cries and wonders why? Why does she have to miss school because of her blackened eyes? Why is mommy so mad? Why no matter how good she is, mommy always thinks she's bad? Why can't she ever hear praise no matter what she does? Why has she never felt her own mother's love? Why is the abuse so real? Why won't these scars heal? Why hasn't her face ever felt a gentle kiss? And why can't mommy use her words instead of her fists? Why can't she be as free as a butterfly? And why can't she have one day where she doesn't have to constantly cry or constantly ask why? On bent knees, she prays, having faith that soon God will send protection her way. We have a chance to protect a child who sheds silent tears, yet displays visible fears. When they become children with no choice, stand tall and open your heart and be that child's voice. Don't, be, don't ever be afraid or please don't wait because for so many children, it becomes too late. On average, five children a day die in the United States alone due to neglect and abuse. If you suspect a child is being abused or neglected, please reach out to the Child Protection Agency in your state, even if it's just a suspicion. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's better to be wrong a hundred times and report than to be right once and fail to make the call. You could literally save a life. For the U.S., a state-by-state -state list of agencies is available at childwelfare.gov. I'll be sure to link it in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these podcasts. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you an all-new case next week, and I can't wait. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash these to support the show today. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.